0: We are the proverbial, you know, frog in a pot where the water is heating up slowly and we don't realize it. Enemies of the West have access to our open society and, you know, that's both a feature and a bug.
1: Welcome to The Convergence, the Army's Mad Scientist podcast. I'm Matt Sandisbert of the Mad Scientist team, and I'll be joined in just a moment by Luke Shabro, Deputy Director of Mad Scientist. Mad Scientist is a U.S. Army initiative that continually explores the future of warfare, challenges assumptions, and collaborates with academia, industry, and government. You can connect with us through Twitter at Army ArmyMadSci, or subscribe to the blog, The Mad Scientist Laboratory, at madsciblog.tradoc.army.mil. On today's episode, We'll be talking with Mr. John Bicknell, Marine Corps veteran and CEO and founder of More Cowbell Unlimited, a company that uses process technologies to predict near-term outcomes of commercial and national security interest. We'll be talking with him about systems complexity, entropy, and how we can make better and faster battlefield decisions. As always, the views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of the Department of Defense, Department of the Army, Army Futures Command, or Training and Doctrine Command. Let's get started. John, thanks so much for being on today.
0: Hey, thanks, fellas. Really looking forward to it. And and I really uh, appreciate the forum that you guys have created for the national security community, a really important project.
1: Well, thank you. We're we're excited to get to talk today about... uh... Some pretty dense topics, and pretty some pretty intricate things here. I don't want to use the word complex because we'll get into that, uh, but it really is. So, but before we before we do that, uh, why don't we get to know a little bit about you, your background? You know, how did you get to where you are? How did you get to founding more Cowbell Unlimited? What's what's the story then? R- really explore the space.
0: That's right. Well, well, let's start there since uh, since you led off that way. Uh, so. The name of my business, More Cowbell Unlimited, it's a cultural reference to a Saturday Night Live skit from the mid-1990s, and the skit contained, you know, had uh, people who everybody knows, like uh, Will Ferrell and Christopher Walken, and the name references that skit, and it really does touch back to who I am as a person. I think of myself as a happy warrior, I like to do earnest work, but I also like to have a good time doing it. And so this this Saturday Night Live skit, it's a... It's a reference to a blue oyster cult song. I, I suggest that your your audience go if they're unfamiliar. you know, YouTube more cowbell, and it'll pop right up it's It's a real hoot, but I spent twenty years in the Marine Corps, and um as I was going through that career, I had uh, the opportunity to go to the Naval Postgraduate School and get a degree which was essentially uh, an operations research degree. Specifically, it was in manpower analysis. I was a, a human resources officer in the Marines, and the curriculum there at NPS had a heavy operations research package, you know, like bolted onto the side of it. So anyway, that... between my my military career and uh, that academic experience, that carries right on through to uh, my business, uh, which is more Cowbell Unlimited. And I look forward to talking to you more about how we're using operations research techniques and
2: what we're doing. John, uh, really excited to have you on and appreciate you coming to talk to us. Um, Big fan of of uh, more cowbell. uh, Great skit. And, um, you know, you've talked a lot before about complexity. Um, How do you see the world when you you talk about complexity um, and how you kind of approach those things?
0: Complexity is here to stay. And uh, we we actually uh, just put out a article which unpacks a lot of this Complexity is uh, different than merely complex. And, you know, complex systems have characteristics which are uh, nonlinear and very difficult to predict. And it really characterizes uh, our world today, which has this infusion of technology that uh, we are grappling with. And so um, we have developed a relatively simple, but I believe powerful way of examining complex systems, which uh, synthesizes a whole bunch of different uh, theory uh, and uh, the, the thinking of some prominent uh uh, thinkers such as people such as Yanir um, Baryam, who is uh, still alive and contributing today. He is the founder and the CEO of the New England Complex Systems Institute, or NEXI. And I had the opportunity to have a great uh, discussion with Yanir about you know getting his perspective on complexity. But we've also brought in concepts from uh, Claude Shannon, who is the gentleman back in the mid uh, 1900s who uh, came up with uh, information theory and a relatively simple uh, formula for measuring uh, entropy within within messages, and so we use Claude Shannon's uh, 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 formula for. Uh, being able to measure the entropy in complex systems. But we're also bringing in concepts uh, from a gentleman named uh, Ross Ashby, who was a contemporary of uh, Claude Shannon and his Law of Requisite Variety, plus some other thinking from Ashby as well. And then also a gentleman named uh, John Holland, and um, of course, John Boyd and the famous OODA loop. And being a Marine, I was you know really steeped in uh, Boyd and the OODA loop and the the notion of being able to outpace our adversaries and uh, make better, faster data-driven decisions. So bringing all of that together uh, in a a complex systems framework, modeling it in an operations research technique and being able to produce insights which help decision makers, uh, commercial and national security decision makers make better, faster data-driven decisions in order for us to be able to pursue our goals And uh, degrade the red team's ability to pursue their goals.
1: John, that's that's awesome stuff. But before I get into, uh, you know, what your company does and how they do it, can you tell our audience a little bit about? Can you describe what entropy is and how it fits into this? Yeah,
0: um, entropy is a term that gets uh, used a lot and uh, misunderstood a lot as well. But it's a very flexible term as well, and. I I tend to be like a like a heterodox or like an interdisciplinary thinker. You know, I'm I'm a guy who's really curious, and I like to bring concepts and and synthesize them from a whole bunch of different people. And so, I first started thinking about this kind of a thing uh, all the way back in the mid 2000s. I would say in the 2002 2004 time period, and I happened across a public television series that's called Joseph Campbell and the Power of Myth. And Joseph Campbell was a comparative religion guy uh, back in the mid-1900s all the way through like the 1970s and 1980s. Anyway, Joseph Campbell was um, also like a, like, like a spiritual guy. And he started talking in this series about energy. And the concept of, of entropy and how he, he started believing that everything in the universe can be articulated in terms of, of energy. And it was that kind of a thinking that uh, started me off on, you know, how systems are really opposite sides of the same coin and that systems interact with one another and are exchanging information and energy. And uh, eventually I started getting turned on to those complex thinkers that I was uh, just describing and trying to understand how do systems interact with one another. And can we use the system interactions to capitalize on shifting dynamics and momentum and like, you know, martial arts, you know, how in martial arts, you try to use your opponent's uh, momentum, or you hit your uh, strengths against your opponent's weaknesses and stuff like that. And so I started thinking about how can we develop ways of looking at combat and now, um, you know, competition below the level of armed conflict and figuring out ways to uh, leverage changes and like directing energy or uh, like inducing entropy within systems. And so that is where we're heading is being able to develop ready suites of TTPs, which can be deployed, which either help increase the entropy of red systems or like reinforce or reduce the entropy of blue systems. And so all this kind of stuff, you know, uh, integrates together into the OODA loop and making better, faster data-driven decisions. And also this concept that um, Ashby has, which I mentioned a few moments ago, which is called the uh, law of requisite variety, which is of tremendous importance. Um, Variety is a word that we use every day. And it is on one hand, very simple, but it's simultaneously uh, profound when it comes to the concepts uh, surrounding complex systems. And it goes something like this. Complex systems have states, right? And in order for a system to maintain itself, um, it has to be able to grapple with the variety of activities which it encounters. So in order to survive, a system must have the requisite variety of responses in order to be able to um, maneuver and adapt to its surrounding environments. And if it doesn't have the requisite variety of responses, ultimately it's going to fail. So what our technique does is it helps model the variety of activities within a system so that you can understand how those varieties of activities are changing. And then you can ultimately use that in order to identify moments when a system may be vulnerable.
1: So, Sean, that's, that's really cool. Um, and, and I like how you're, you started talking about how you're modeling these processes. So, can you go into a little bit more detail about what More Cowbell Unlimited does and how you use these tools to gain information advantage or help the army out?
0: Yeah, yeah, for sure. So when you really get down to it, More Cowbell Unlimited is a decision support firm. We help organizations make better, faster data-driven decisions. And the technique that we use is called process mining. And so process mining was developed originally in the Netherlands about 20 years ago in a business context for organizations to model the processes which run the business the human resources hiring process a manufacturing process a purchasing reconciliation process there you know mature organizations have dozens or hundreds possibly uh, processes which run the business. And process mining is a data-driven approach for modeling these processes. And you you guys have probably been part of, or at least you've heard of, and I'm sure your audience as well, um, has been a part of process improvement projects, which are really important, right? These these processes help businesses pursue their goals, help them make money, help them um, reduce operating costs. And so making sure that the, the business processes are are tuned and are operating as as efficiently as possible is of great importance to businesses. And uh, process mining is like I said, a data-driven approach to being able to uh, look at this. So what process mining does then is it, interrogates system event logs, right? It could be the human resources system, uh, an enterprise resource management system, a customer relationship management system, you know, on and on and on. All of these systems produce what are called event logs. And the event logs contain within them like footsteps or traces of process activities, which are performed by humans or machines or both, right? And so process mining algorithms interrogate these logs and surface in a data-driven fashion, again, the uh, process, right? And so businesses, when they model their processes these ways, um, inevitably they are quite surprised because they have in their minds, you know, what they think the process is right and so they get into a conference room and they whiteboard out the process and stick in wire diagrams well first bill does this and then we hand it off to sally and she does this and then it goes to you know tim and then tim does this and they you know whiteboard this out right um, but what process mining does is it helps illuminate where there are inefficiencies where there are like rework steps where there are are bottlenecks in the process? Um, you know, some organizations or many organizations these days, like uh, especially like uh, healthcare uh, operations and um, financial services institutes, they they have compliance. Requirements, right? And so, if compliance steps are are skipped or are not done properly, then you know people go to jail. So, process mining is a way to uh, illuminate all of that in a very helpful way, and it, it also serves as like an input into things like uh, digital transformation, which is a big buzzword these days. So, anyway all of that is is a bit of a prelude right that's the, all of that is on the business side but we're taking that all of those same concepts and algorithms and instead we're applying them to processes which are natural which are self-organizing which are emergent complex systems and complex systems and as as i've been describing can be found everywhere, right? So the kinds of things that we've been modeling include things like uh, crop growth from multispectral drone imagery. Um, we've looked at corporate ecosystems, like looking at looking through uh, email data, which helps illuminate, you know, uh, planning and execution cycles within within organizations. Um, we've looked at hurricane landfall. We've looked at civil unrest. Uh, we've looked at whale behavior from uh, uh, telemetry tags, which are put on uh, blue whales and fin whales um, every summer, and looking at whale diving and foraging behavior. Uh, We've looked at uh, bot logic within social media data, we've got some um, uh, peer reviewed journal articles on our website that people can uh, check out on some of these projects as well, and then we've also been working with the Space Force and modeling ecosystems of satellites uh, in the geostationary orbital regime as well.
2: John, I think that's all really interesting and I think extremely important to how we think about um, interactions, both social business um, and in the military business, um, the the speed at which these things take place. And so I, I kind of tend to think about as somebody who's been in uh, intelligence, most of my career, and really one of the biggest things we have to do is translate right this uh, kind of complex intelligence and information, and distill that into you know something that decision makers, war fighters, can use. And so when you're talking about complexity um, and these systems confrontations in a way and how they interact, how do you take that complexity, uh, you know, of course, complex uh, and then make it so that decision makers, war fighters, commanders and and in the business sense, CEOs who can't necessarily uh, don't have the bandwidth to dive deep into some of these things. How do you distill that into um, what's most useful for them, and make it make it a part of how it impacts their everyday life.
0: Yeah, that's a great question, Luke. And so we've uh, developed uh, data products, which. Visualize and extract the most important dynamics from uh, these ecosystems are you know always changing and evolving. But um, yeah, back to one of the points that I I, I didn't make very well about um, Ashby and Ashby's uh, law of requisite variety. He he's got. A, a really nifty paper, and it, it would be dynamite if you guys could include a, a link to it. But complex systems are notoriously difficult to predict, especially for the mid and the long term, right? But we can predict with a lot better accuracy what a complex system is going to do in the very, very short run. And in order to do that, the most important data is the data that you, you just received, the newest data can predict what's going to happen like in the very next moment or, or, or the very next relative moment. So depending on the ecosystem or the complex system that you're modeling, the, the next relevant moment might be uh, next month or the next relative moment might be tomorrow, or the next relevant moment could be an hour. Or if you're modeling some kind of like a, a cyber system or like a, a, a chip system, it, it, the, the next moment could be the next microsecond. Um, we haven't done that kind of modeling, but I hope what I'm saying is that uh, being able to predict the next relevant moment is, is what we are targeting. And so we've developed a way to uh, like a like a natural language engine to be able to narrate what is happening within a scene of interest. Right. And so uh, we've looked at crime. Within the city of Baltimore from for for the last couple of years, right? So there's there's trends within neighborhoods that are related to crime. And so we would narrate a, a scene for a decision maker uh, which says, you know, for for this neighborhood, the the relative crime has been increasing or decreasing over the last couple of months, right? And we have, we are observing a significant change in shootings, or a significant change in aggravated assaults. And uh, we would estimate that these trends are going to continue, or you can expect these trends to decrease over the next relative time horizon. So these, getting back to your question, Luke, these data products uh, help uh, reduce the cognitive load of decision makers so that they can focus on what is important to them rather than trying to nug through data and, and, and uh, surface those insights themselves. And so we have some relatively intuitive ways of surfacing this so that a, um, you know, someone who doesn't have a technical background can understand what it is happening and can communicate that to a decision maker and, and also flop this, this uh, data product right in front of them so that they can understand what's happening too. And one great feature of all this that I didn't mention at the top is that this is explainable artificial intelligence, which means again, you don't need a technical background in order to understand how you go from like raw data, raw observations, raw um, ISR data you know, through the algorithm to produce these uh, data products, which is also uh, very much in demand these days. And it helps engender trust in the outputs for decision makers.
1: John, thanks for that. Um, I, I want to ask you a little bit about, um, you know, the the speed of the battlefield is, is getting quicker and quicker. And you mentioned that um, theoretically the tool could be used to process relevant moments in the microseconds. But as we get closer and closer to combat, the time afforded for us to make decisions gets smaller and smaller. So how close to the edge of the battlefield do you see this tool or this process being able to be operationalized? Is it something that would be back at the headquarters, something that would be back at a command post somewhere, or something that is right there on
0: the edge? Great question, Matt. And I I, I believe it's possible to uh, scale it horizontally and vertically. And so, vertically, in this case, would be from the strategic level all the way down to the to the tactical edge. I believe all of that is possible to improve decision making for uh, you, know, you know troops in contact uh, and uh, understanding what is happening right now, so that. Uh, that, that fire team leader or the platoon commander or the company or battalion commander can, uh, use it in order to assess what is happening within the, the grid squares within my AO. So if the, the variety of, of activities that are, you know, kinetic, uh, small arms, fire artillery, you know, drone activities, uh, or, uh, even if it's uh, activities below the level of armed conflict, you know, being able to understand the shifting variety of activities within various different grid squares can help inform decision making for the tactical commander. So let's say you're a soft team commander, and it allows that commander to ask questions, how can I take advantage of the shifting variety of activities within my area of operations? Would it be more advantageous for me to send my soft team into an area where the kinetic or the non-kinetic active or a combination of activities is increasing in other words, this, this grid square is becoming more chaotic. The, the entropy is increasing. Would it be more adv- advantageous for me to send in my team at that moment? Or depending on what it is that I want to do, it would be more advantageous for me to send my team in while the uh, variety of activities or the entropy of the grid square is decreasing. And you can probably make an argument uh, you know, under certain conditions or uh, under certain uh, uh, moments, it would be advantageous to go in, depending on what it is that the commander wants to do. But absolutely, I think it can be used at the tactical level, the operational level, and as I was saying a moment ago, at the uh, geo-strategic level. And the project... Uh, to to make it at the strategic or the geopolitical level would be to create uh, like ontologies of activities which are relevant for for the different level tactical operational and strategic and so you would have these these nested ontologies of activities which which ladder up and down so that the uh, data products that are derived. Uh, at d- depending on the level, are are all part of the same ontology, uh, so that the the site picture that is created at the, at the tactical level um, is uh, embedded within the site picture at the operational level, and which is then embedded as well as you as you go up. So the idea would be to have this like drillable capability from the strategic to the operational to the tactical does does that make sense
1: absolutely uh, and I, and I appreciate that response John can
0: I add just one one other thing here and I I, I should have said this um, at the top as well but um, whenever I have conversations like this these these kinds of conversations uh, represent like live thinking or you know live processing on my part um, uh, you know I, I I tend to synthesize a lot of different concepts and uh, like today's articulation of these concepts, um, you know, represent what I was thinking about last night when I was going to bed right (laughs) so Today's discussion will uh, uh, probably change a little bit if if I talk more about this, like in in a month. So I'm I'm I'm, I'm constantly processing this, and so th- I mean this is like the the conversation that we're having right now is not a whole lot different than the kind of conversation that I would have with a, a customer or the kind of conversation that I would have with uh, my team as we're sitting around, you know, developing all of this. So just just a little window. Into the mind of John Vicknell there.
1: Yeah, I'm, I'm tracking, and I'm I'm doing my best to keep up with what's a somewhat intricate topic here. So, uh, even though podcast listeners can't see it, I'm trying to do my best active listening. <laughs> uh, even though I may not have a fully formed uh, response, or I may not understand it completely. Yeah, and,
0: and what, what one other thing to to tag on to that, Matt, um, is uh, some of this. It, it's easier to understand. Uh, with, with visuals. <laughs> and so uh, your, your listeners uh, are, are welcome to go check out a uh, unlisted YouTube video that we have. And if you go to more cowbellunlimited.com slash mad scientist, you'll uh, get to the uh, uh, video. And it's about a 27 minute video, which helps unpack all of this. And you've got some visuals, which help you connect the dots too.
1: perfect, we'll, we'll try to link to uh, as many visual aid resources as we can in the in the blog post right. when we put this up. Um, before we transition to our rapid fire questions, I want to ask you, you mentioned the article uh, that you had, had recently published earlier uh, in the podcast. And you use the term, the coin of the realm. Can you talk to us a little bit about what you mean by that term and why you chose it?
0: Yeah, sure. You bet. And a big shout out, actually, to my co-author on this article uh, a guy named Brian Russell. And uh, Brian and I were in the Marines together. We served together in Afghanistan and then our, path, our careers t- uh, crossed paths a couple of other times as well. Uh, Brian retired recently and he was the uh, commander of the second MIG, the MEF Information Group, which is uh, the, the United States Marine Corps has, has three MIGs and and he was the commander of one of the MIGs and it, uh, it's all about information operations and cyber related stuff so um brian knows what he's talking about as far as uh, systems confrontation in, in in the cyber environment he was um i think the j3 for um uh, jtf Ares and uh combating isis back in the 2015-2016 time frame anyway he he knows what he's talking about and i uh Uh, recommend to the audience to go check out this article, but um, the coin of the realm. So you've got blue and red forces in a systems confrontation uh, context, right? And the blue and red are opposite sides of the same coin, which is why we call it the coin of the realm, meaning being able to predict what blue and red systems are doing uh, to each other. And it could be deliberate, like, you know, the, the blue team does, does this and the red team counters uh, very deliberately. Uh, so you can predict uh, those kinds of deliberate interactions um, or the interactions could be emergent. And this gets back, by the way, Matt, to the uh, concept of, of entropy and uh, systems consuming energy And exhausting energy uh, just naturally, right? And when a system exhausts energy, that energy is then consumed by adjacent systems. And so systems interact with one another naturally. Uh, And so... That's why, you know, you, you can't, it's it's like uh, uh, good and evil coexist. You can't have good without evil. Blue and red are opposite sides of the same coin. And so uh, what we've been able to do is uh, model the activities of blue and red systems. And we did this, and there's a, a link in the article to this analysis that we did uh, for people who want to go and check it out. But we, we looked at... Um, uh, competing systems in a space context. So, back to looking at, say, like Chinese, Russian, and US uh, ecosystems of satellites on orbit, and how do these systems interact with one another in a maneuver context? And we were able to correlate these maneuvers. So, like when Russian maneuvers in the geo belt tend to precede Uh, Chinese maneuvers by like five to seven days. And so these types of analyses uh, help imply a uh, planning and execution cycles for the various different countries, right? And if you can anticipate what they are going to be doing, then that helps you uh, maneuver and pursue your goals. It helps you identify moments when a red system may be especially vulnerable, for, for certain types of provocations or you know, being able to uh, direct activities which help um, increase the entropy or you know, throw sand in the gears of um, red systems. Uh, or uh, on the other side of the coin, again, you can identify moments of vulnerability within your blue system and so that you can anticipate those moments of vulnerability, and be sure that you are um, uh, protecting yourself when when you're especially vulnerable. So it's a very flexible approach to be able to um, defend yourself or attack your your adversary at, at certain moments when activities are changing, or when the variety of activities are at a certain state, and you can direct your energy at the red system in order to induce uh, a higher entropic in state, for example.
2: No, I really dig that, uh, John, because I think um, one of the things we've explored is idea systems confrontation and um, everything that you've said applies in terms of the complexity of that um, and the changing dynamic. And when those Different trends or interactions come together, um, it's very much of why we name the podcast this Convergence. Um, because the, the the convergence of those different trends, activities, and interactions um, consistently changes um, the whole dynamic rather than uh, it's not binary and it's not um, all pre planned. Um, so it's important for us to be anticipatory about those things. So, really, really love everything you've explored. So, John, if you're good, uh, uh, what we'd like to do is transition to uh, what we call our rapid fire questions, but take your time. Uh, but we like to ask all our guests these questions to get a better sense of who they are and um, and and explain them more to our audience as well. So the first question uh, that we always ask is, "What trend or technology keeps you up at night?"
0: You know, I would probably give a different answer to this uh, question on 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 any given day. But right now, what is keeping me up at night is the notion that we are, and and by we, I mean Western democracies, is that we are the proverbial frog in a pot where the water is heating up slowly and we don't realize it because it, it's happening so slowly. It's like, yeah, we're, we're, we're all fish in a fishbowl and, and we're, we're all swimming in the information environment and changes are not happening so fast that we're able to perceive them, but the changes are happening nevertheless. And so that concept keeps me up at night, that enemies of the West have access to our open society. And you know, that's both a feature and a bug, right? It's a feature in that uh, we, we, we think that one of our greatest advantages is the freedom that we enjoy. And that is you know, freedom from government tyranny, the freedom to be able to do what we want when we wanna do it, the, the freedom to innovate and let people do, you know, pursue the, the the careers and the lives that they want to pursue without a whole lot of restriction. And so we think that this 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 innovation engine that was, you know, helped, uh, you know, manifest by the Enlightenment right? That, that that this kind of an engine is going to help us compete in the long run. And, and I certainly subscribe to that as well. Uh, again, on the other side of that coin, though, uh, we're an open society and uh, enemies of the West are maintaining a presence in our homes, you know, in our daily lives, on our phones, you know, we are being like surveilled and uh, we are being influenced. And It's not obvious. That kind of a thing uh, keeps me up at night. And on another day, I would say, the, the concept of the metaverse or, you know, these immersive virtual reality uh, environments, which uh, uh, also are are very worrisome. So those are the kinds of things that keep me up at night.
2: Great answer, John. And I think that keeps a lot of us up at night. Second question for a rapid fire. What is something about you that you're willing to share on air uh, that most people might not know? Yeah, so uh, some people
0: might be able to infer this from uh, my business name, More Cowbell Unlimited, because that has a, a touch point with, with music, as I mentioned a few moments ago. It, it's, it, 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 the uh, Saturday Night Live skit uh, is all around a, a Blue Oyster Cult song, uh, uh, Don't Fear the Reaper. And uh, so, you know, music has been a big part of my life for my entire life and oh yeah also you know back to back to that more cowbell skit on my website like on the about page there's 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 a page which discusses this skit and and, and why etc but at the bottom of that same page is a copy and paste of my email signature block from when I was in Afghanistan from 2009 to 2010. So the, the signature block has uh, Lieutenant Colonel John Bignell, G1 of the Marine Expeditionary Brigade Afghanistan, blah, blah, blah. It's got my various different email addresses and phone numbers. And then down at the very bottom of that uh, email uh, signature block, it has more cowbell and it's in, it's in smaller font, but that was part of my, uh, uh, email signature block when I was in Afghanistan and on, on the more cowbell. So this is, this, this gets into like being like a deep cut here, uh, for your audience. But, uh, if you look closely on, on the O in more cowbell, um, there's, there's an umlaut over the O, which again is a reference back to Blue Oyster Cult for uh, Blue Oyster Cult fans out there. The O in oyster has like an umlaut uh, over it, and uh, you know, just like More Cowbell Unlimited uh, really doesn't. Uh, have much to do with what my business does. The the umlaut in the O in Blue Oyster Cult uh, doesn't have anything to do with uh, the band name. Uh, the the backstory on that I, I believe is that the uh, band just thought that that looked you know really rad, and so they put an umlaut over the O. So anyway, there's a there's a little deep cut and uh, uh, a little gl- uh, a deeper d- uh, glimpse into the mind of uh, John Bicknell. So I would say music and uh, referencing music uh, in in my work.
2: Well, we love that as Matt and I are huge uh, pop culture fans that uh, talk far too much, probably about 90s uh, pop culture, especially. Um, so on to our last question, which is often called our most challenging. What is your favorite movie?
0: OK, yeah. So I, I knew you're going to ask this. I, I knew you're going to ask the previous question, too. So, yeah, 90s pop culture. Here you go. Uh, pulp Fiction. Is is I I would say my favorite movie, and then a, a close second would be another Quentin Tarantino movie, uh, Inglorious Bastards. But uh, Pulp Fiction is right up there at number one. And coincidentally, and I I promise you, I did not go and look this up so that I could have something uh, more for the to, to answer this question. But I'll I'll send this to you guys as well. Coincidentally, last night on on my YouTube feed, YouTube now has these. These little shorts, right? These little thirty-second videos. Um, this 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 video came up, which was a you know uh, uh, a, a top over bottom comparison of that famous uh, dance scene between John Travolta and Uma Thurman uh, in Pulp Fiction, where they were dancing to the uh, Chuck Berry song uh, "Teenage Wedding." Or uh, C'est la vie, right? It was a teenage wedding and the old folks. Anyway, they've they've got the original scene uh, of them dancing. And that was from 1994. And then right below it, it it was like from 2022. So like just about a year ago. And it's got Uma Thurman, uh, John Travolta, and Samuel Jackson like at at an award show or something like I don't know the Grammys or something like that.
1: Yeah, speaking of things that keep you up at night, isn't it weird how YouTube seems to know what you want to watch before you know you want to watch it?
0: Yeah, it, incredible. And you know, I I I really do believe, fellas, that we are we are living right now in this very moment. We're living in the best time ever, ever. Right? You know the uh, types of uh, you know, comforts and the, the technology that we enjoy, uh, uh, is absolutely marvelous. And it's also a double-edged sword.
1: No, I, I completely agree. I think, you know, we often get lost in the very immediate, but if you look at, if you look at the line graph, we're at a high, even if there's a few dips here and there averaging out, we are, it's as, as great as it's ever been.
0: Right. And, and I, I, I think, um, most of that is attributable to the enlightenment project that we are still living. And I, you know, back, back to something I, uh, a point I made at the top. Um, I like to do earnest work. I like to do important work, but have a good time while doing it. But I, I think that the enlightenment, the, the Western project is worth preserving for future generations. And, uh, That also helps uh, encapsulate my personal mission statement, I guess, if you will.
1: Right on. I mean, you're you're talking to the mad scientists who are lifelong learners who like to do good, earnest work and have a good time while we're doing it. Yeah. So before we end here, I want to give you a chance. Where can people? Uh, you mentioned, you know, your your website. Where can people follow your work? Are you on social media? Are you out doing other ventures? What do you have going on?
0: Yeah. Thanks. So I, I mentioned my my website morecowbellunlimited.com. Uh, you know, uh, we we've got articles there, white papers. That uh, people can check out some some videos as well, so please go check that out. Uh, but I, I I'm also the vice president of the Information Professionals Association, and uh, thanks for the opportunity just to give a real quick download about um, IPA. So um, IPA was started a few years ago. Our our, our website is information-professionals.org. Uh, you can go check that out. But it was started a few years ago by some retired Uh, U.S. Army uh, PSYOP officers and some like-minded academics, but we are a professional organization for Information professionals, uh, and that includes psyopers, uh, miso, sigint, electronic warfare, uh, cognitive scientists of, of uh, all kinds of varieties, media, public affairs, anybody, journalists, people who think of themselves as an information professional are 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 welcome into the organization. And so, um, it was founded in order to uh, be a, a techno a, a nexus. Uh, for uh, people studying you know hard and soft power and and influence and cognitive security and so the kinds of things that uh, we, we've got chapters that are going to be rolling out this this year we're developing a cognitive security uh, professional certificate you know kind of like uh, the various different cyber certificates that people can pursue um, uh, you know, back to talking about standards, right? The, the ultimate goal would be for these uh, professional credentials to become part of uh, job requirements, right? And uh, you know, people can put these on their resume. Uh, there's a there's a cognitive security journal, like a double-blind peer-reviewed journal that that we are going to be rolling out this year, and um, we are also intimately involved. In uh, the Phoenix Challenge Conference series, which is a, a, a DOD conference. It's sponsored by the Office of the Undersecretary of Defense for Policy. Um, uh, and uh, we are partnered with um, one of our nation's UARCs, uh, ARLIS, the Applied Research Lab for Intelligence and Security. Anyway, together we help put on the uh, Phoenix Challenge uh, Conference, which is. Um, there's actually one that is happening later this month in partnership with the uh, UK Ministry of Defence, and then finally, I'm I, I'm I'm the host of IPA's podcast, the Cognitive Crucible podcast, and so I uh, hope that your audience will uh, check out that podcast in IPA, and um, you know please become a member. Uh, it is a very Worthwhile and important project, uh, which aligns with everything that we've been talking about uh, in today's discussion. And that, thanks a lot for giving me the opportunity to tell your audience about IPA.
1: Absolutely, that's that's great stuff. So uh, you know, if you want to reach out to John or see what he's doing or see the groups that he's involved with, we will have links to things uh, in the blog post and the show notes here. And so, so John, once again, you know, we just want to thank you for coming on. I think this is kind of the tip of the iceberg. So thanks for coming on and, and talking to us about it and kind of helping us understand a little bit more and maybe helping the army see it a little bit more clearly. Yeah.
0: Matt, Luke, thank you guys so much for what you do and thank you for the opportunity.
1: Thanks for listening to The Convergence. I'd like to thank our guest, Mr. John Bicknell for talking with us. You can connect with Mad Scientists through Twitter at @armymadsci and don't forget to subscribe to our blog, The Mad Scientist Laboratory at madsciblog.treadoc.army.mil. Finally, if you enjoyed this podcast, please consider giving us a rating or review on Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you accessed it. This feedback helps us to improve future episodes of The Convergence and allows us to reach a bigger and broader audience.